0: Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. Today I was joined again by Michael Wiggins. Of course, we took the chance to talk more about energy. We talked about natural gas, nuclear energy, and Michael told us all about the three Ds, which are deglobalization, decarbonization, and digitalization. Now, we've had some very interesting moves in the energy sector as of late, natural gas has been rallying, and of course, we've also seen some interesting moves in uranium, And overall, I think this is really a very important time for energy investors. And I think this could set us up for a big rally in the coming year and even decade. It's always a great pleasure to talk to Michael. He's incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to the energy sector. So if you haven't already, go ahead and check out his stuff on Seeking Alpha. And also, if you haven't already please go ahead, like, share, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using. It would be greatly appreciated. As always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Um, All right, welcome back, everybody, and welcome back by popular demand. We have Michael Wiggins with us again. Michael, thanks for coming.
1: Thank you so much for having me,
0: James. Thank you. Um, How are you doing? You good? Yeah, great, great. All right, so of course we're going to talk about energy today. I want to start off maybe with the topic of China because we have had some interesting news coming out of China. The bank, uh, the PBOC is going to be issuing some more stimulus. The idea now, consensus amongst economists is more fiscal stimulus. Of course, that is in response to the Chinese economy slowing down and China is a big part of the whole global energy puzzle, isn't it, Michael? Basically, in my view, this plays into what I call the
1: triple D's, which is mm-hmm. deglobalization, decarbonization, and digitalization. So, when everyone thinks about deglobalization, a lot of people are thinking about how the West is taking supply away from China. But at the mm-hmm. same time, actually happening here is that China is trying to decouple from the West as well. So one example here can be in the semiconductor industry how they're trying to have less dependency on the us so for example and the the chinese made by china 2025 uh, mandate is to really put semiconductor industry at the core here of what's going to be their technological drivers and they're quite good at this when they really focus on something they seem to have this kind of vision and they kind of really run with it and we saw this in the in the decade of the 2010s how they did with the internet boom so when they really are focused about something this can be a meaningful driver so what happens with this deglobalization is that you end up with quite a lot of redundancy, okay? So in China, they end up building a lot of construction. And here mm-hmm. in the U.S. and the Western world, we also end up building a lot. But there is a bit of period of inefficiency, okay? So everyone's kind of thinking, oh, you know, China's going to go for this lockdown. When they come out, it's going to be the same as it was in the West, the great reopening. It didn't work out like that. And everyone's like, okay, you know, China's dead. Forget China. China's dead. But what's actually happened is that we are decoupling from our investments in China. So for example, let's say uh, you Tesla, you might not be as acutely interested in investing in China. So you kind of pull that back slightly, but just because you pull it back one month, doesn't mean it shows up next month somewhere else. So there's a bit of a kind of a low period and it's in this low period that everyone's kind of trying to catch the trend. And whilst I do believe that it's very important to think about a secular trend, it can be a bit choppy. So the best way that I can think about it is everyone, what happened during the pandemic in a lot of companies, there was a acceleration and everyone kind of got caught off guard and everyone's like, okay, everything's gonna go digital. I'm obviously rewinding the clock here like to about uh, to 2020 when everything went uh, up in the air and everyone saw an acceleration and Then once we came to compare to the comparables two years later, it's a period of digestion. Nothing fundamentally has really changed. It's still the same secular trend. This is a period of digestion. Now, why um, with China, it's the same thing here. So they are still going to be very much investing in energy. They're very much investing in making sure that they have the energy security nowadays. Right at this moment, we're kind of middle of summer 2023, people are not really thinking about energy security. That's a, such a 2022 uh, frame of mind. But that's because there's been this kind of lull in energy prices. So everyone's like, oh, you know, energy, forget that. But energy is crucial for everything. And predominantly mm-hmm. to make our AI transition, that's going to be the limiting factor here. I believe that it's not going to be that difficult to ramp up the amount of energy um, energy that you need, but you need to have access to very cheap energy around the world so you can run forward with this AI transition. So rather than having, let's say, pacing point, um, something like AWS, which is massive, right? Uh, All that data going to one provider, you're going to have lots of small specialized offerings. Now, with AWS, what happened was that they had about five or six years advancement on everyone else. So when Microsoft came in, you know, there's a the, there's the famous Buffett quote that, oh, you don't go and give just Bezos a seven years advantage because it will just dominate that market. So mm-hmm. with AI, everyone's like, oh, you know, AI has been around for a long time, but this version of AI is modern and it's cutting edge and everyone is after it. It doesn't matter if it's meta, doesn't matter if it's Google, it doesn't matter like it's AWS, it's Microsoft, it's everyone is after this. And it very much depends on within what niche, how much you're gonna need. But if you were a CEO of a company in the Fortune 500 and today you're not asking yourself, how will I uh, be able to use AI and how will my business be disrupted by AI? You're gonna be left behind. So everyone is chasing around and trying to figure out as they go. So in this period, going back to China is a period where we're going to see a lot of energy demand coming up in the next several years. And just, finally, just to wrap this up, because this is so, so important, it's happening right now in these days, is about natural gas. So natural gas provides approximately in the ballpark of, let's say, depends on the country, but in the ballpark of 20 to 30 percent, of the electricity okay now when we're trying that's the third anchor that about when i said at the start uh, digitalization is the third anchor here so it is decarbonization and digitalization to run all that ai power you need a lot of electricity in your in a fridge james in the future they're going to say oh james you've eaten a lot of calories today you better uh not eat so many calories maybe consider this type of food when you have your coffee machine they're going to be like okay those beans might not be the best for that type of meal that you ate when you go and put your dishwasher says hey, have you thought about consuming less energy so all our appliances all our wearables all our mobiles all, all the technology is going to have ai on it but and the limitation there is having access to cheap electricity so mm-hmm. electricity around the world comes predominantly from natural gas right so in europe right now everyone's like okay we don't need like natural gas everyone's like okay you know natural gas forget it and we w- went through a period of just being um lulled into inactivity so in the last several months, the natural gas prices fell down, and everyone's like, okay, well, like forget it, we don't really need to worry about it. But now all of a sudden, it's going to get a bit warm in China, and everyone's like, oh, you know, let's get let's get some cargo of liquefied natural gas cargo to come uh, to make sure we got enough to to get over this uh, winter period. And China's like, okay, we actually need the natural gas as well. So what's happening right now? You have two different completing trends. You have the demand for energy going up in terms of in the next several years, in terms of AI and computing ho- horsepower, and at the same time, you're having to decarbonize the world. And we're trying to say, okay, we are in this energy transition, and how are we going to go about uh, actually removing our supply from coal, from natural gas? So it's a period of everyone kind of saying, having one aspiration, but I think that th- and underneath all that, the reality is that this energy security problem is still with us and is still very real.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. As you put it there, you have those three D's, right? We talk about digitalization. I still remember in our last podcast, you talked about the energy expenditure of ChatGPT. Very interesting data point there. Then, of course, we also have deglobalization, how that is going to affect everything. And absolutely, we're seeing those com- those companies like Apple moving away from China maybe into areas of southeast asia india for example and then of course we have um decarbonization decarbonization of course now would it be safe to say because decarbonization you talk about moving away from fossil fuels and natural gas natural gas is kind of a, le- a bit less carbon intensive right i always mm-hmm. think about natural gas so as kind of being long... that that step in between right mm-hmm.
1: So the way that they describe it in uh, COP27, it's the greenest or the cleanest of the fossil fuels. So Mm -hmm. natural gas is approximately 40% less carbon intensive than coal, okay? So around the world, the US, everywhere, we use a substantial amount of coal, but the goal is to get rid of some of that coal and to replace it with natural gas, The, the stepping stone, the bridge fuel. So you can make an assertion and that natural gas is, is a bridge to nuclear and renewables, or you can make the assertion that you cannot replace natural gas that is a destination fuel. You cannot make nitrogen fertilizer without natural gas. You can't mm-hmm. make... A, a, well, you could, but it's expensive to, to replace natural gas with um, when you're making aluminum. So there are certain aspects here that make it, irreplaceable at the same time when everyone is thinking about this green transition everyone's trying to kind of chip away at using something but despite all the investment that we have made in this renewable transition globally around something like four five percent of the renewables is what makes up our whole energy supply so we're mm-hmm. investing about close to a trillion dollars on this kind of transition towards renewables, but around the world we're still about 80 percent dependent on fossil fuels there is you know you can't really get rid of these heavy oils if you want to ship something our economy is reliant on shipping stuff around the world okay and you mm-hmm. cannot ship something that's let's say several hundred thousand tons heavy with 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 anything else right you need those heavy kerosene oils you can't transport me over to uh, somewhere to like spain without putting people on a plane and those you need the heavy oils. it's just it's just simple right Mm -hmm. so there are some aspects that we can there's non-negotiable we will have to use fossil fuels but there's other things for example electricity the aspiration is to get more of that energy supply coming from let's say solar panels coming from wind turbines but the problem here is two things number one those energy sources are intermittent nothing wrong with that as long as you think about that right so you need energy in the evening you need energy in the morning right so Mm -hmm. that's mostly in the evening so when you come home you like in normal temperature not in the middle of summer you come home you put your heating on right so you put a heat pump on in the future let's say you have a heat pump you that's electricity so you need that, that charging at night you also need to charge your ev vehicle okay so these are two things you're very very much energy intensive you're going to charge them in the evening okay now there's nothing wrong with intermittent solar Sources of energy as long as you factor that in that's why you need batteries that's why you you just need to figure out okay this is the electrical grid this is where we're going to put all those solar panels all those wind turbines and from that point where you make the solar panels and when you install the wind turbine from that point to the highly dense populated area, you need to have along the way certain checkpoints where you're storing that energy because you don't know where that energy is going to go. Right. You might go to mm-hmm. New York. You might go somewhere else, Florida, and you need to have that, that capacity along the way. So it's not impossible. It's just that the, people need to figure out some way of of managing this situation so a solution to optimize this energy transition in terms of how do you optimize the efficiency of uh, mm-hmm. this energy um so it's one thing to say okay uh, i really want to kind of uh like in a small country for example uh, i don't know like uh, norway or whatever you want to kind of change how you supply that it's it's easier to do in a small country but once you get into a very densely populated places like china uh, it's kind of more difficult and you competing for resources, right? Because when you are trying to go on this renewable energy transition, you have to build that. So to build like a wind turbine or to build a solar panel, you need steel. You need a lot of steel. And that's really energy intensive. So you need, for example, in the case of steel, you need a metallurgical coal, so it's a different type of coal. It's not the same coal as you use to uh, for. It's not thermal coal that you use for electricity. But you still you need that you need that high energy intensity input to make some of these uh, components. So it's it's all well and good for us to say okay, um, we want to kind of go on this on a on a pathway towards uh, become a net zero. And another way to do it is to supplement some of that um. Energy transition with, let's say, nuclear power. So, in the past several days, really, uh, the price of uh, uranium has come up significantly. Now, no one knows how, how like, what's going to happen here. And mm-hmm. uh, prices never go to the sky, and you know, it's always up and down. So, just because it's up now doesn't mean anything. It can be back down, and things don't go in a straight line. Okay, but what is critically important here is to think about this, right? So. Nobody was really interested in uranium for the past, let's say, three years. And then about two years ago, there was kind of a bit more interest in that space. But politically, it was still kind of like seen as not that interesting, even though it's, you know, it has a, it's no carbon, it's highly reliable, it's flexible, and it's cheap. Okay. So it has a lot of attributes that can easily replace fossil fuels. It has a lot of, you can scale quite easily with it. Okay. But in the last several weeks, we've seen um, the U.S. Senate attempt to pass a bill to expedite the use of small modular reactors. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens here is that it's kind of like a a stepping stone. So um, rather than having these large nuclear plants, you end up with these small modular reactors. They do use less uh, Mm -hmm. uranium, but because there's more of them, you end up using significantly more than you, you would if you didn't have them. Mm-hmm. so it's like a stepping stone so it's you know how they say about, about um, energy that it's all of the above it's not going to be good enough for um let's say france to dislodge their use away from let's say nuclear but uh, for certain countries or even certain areas within a country it might make more sense to have let's say wind turbines or it might make more sense to have a uranium source of energy so mm-hmm. you need several different ways and it's not like one bullet to solve all crisis. You, know? it's, you need a, a few different approaches how you tackle this problem.
0: Absolutely, I think that fits in very well with what you said before about deglobalization because I'm looking at some headlines here. It says China has about somewhere within 22, 24 uh, nuclear reactors or units they're calling them under construction. And I feel like that might be a bit of a catalyst, right? Because as soon as China starts using this kind of what you might call cheap and reliable energy source, the U.S. has no choice, right? The rest of the nations have to go with it. Otherwise, they're going to they're gonna be left in the dust, right? So I, you recently wrote an article about uranium stock, Cameco. So tell us a bit more about that and maybe how investors can profit from this in a more actionable way.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's a really good question. Sometimes they kind of say a lot and it's difficult for me to actually, unless someone stops me and says, how can I express that? So a lot of investors... It will naturally go towards the Sprot ETF, okay, and um, you can people can just Google that. So the Sprot ETF is um, a way to get exposure to mm-hmm. uranium prices. The disadvantage is that it hasn't; it just tracks to a large extent the uranium price, okay. I, the, what they do is that once um, the price of the Sprot goes above their net asset value, they, they, they take that capital and they buy up the Uranium, they store it. Okay? So it's mm-hmm. a long only vehicle. It means that um, the, it just tracks the price of Uranium on the way up. And it, when the price of Uranium kind of slows down, it just stagnates like that. Okay? So there's not a lot of um, downside. This is the great appeal of it. Okay, You just kind of sit around for the journey. Now a lot of people believe that there's going to be a uranium squeeze in the market. Okay, I'll just explain that in case you viewers are not familiar with that. So the idea here is that we need, let's say, uh, 190 million tons uh, of uh, million pounds of uranium in a year, and we're only producing about 150. Now, that that idea. I don't buy it because for there to be a squeeze, it's kind of like, you know, the Nassim Taleb black swan. A squeeze Mm -hmm. by definition is when nobody is really following it, okay? It's when people are kind of taken off guard. You saw this with natural gas and what happened in 2022. So you saw it with fertilizer. So it's like, it's it's, it's when people are not expecting it. When everyone is on Twitter talking about uranium prices going to the moon, like that just by definition is not going to happen because the utilities that buy up this uh, uranium, they are not just sitting around, they, you know, they're planning, they're contracting out. And this takes me to Cameco. So Cameco is, is one of the largest uranium producers in the world. It's based in, right? Okay? So the other one, the biggest one is Kazakh prom. Uh, and I'll come to that one in a minute. So with Cameco, it's a bit more leveraged, as in there's a bit mm. more upside. and. Right, okay, so it's There's minimal downside, and that's fantastic. For a lot of people, that's, you know, the best vehicle. Cameco is a bit more volatile, okay? So with Cameco, they contract out the the uranium several years in advance, about two years in advance. They kind of say, okay, uh, pay us, let's say, for example, uh, $60 per pound, uh, and we'll we'll ensure that you get your uranium, okay? And for, for, for Cameco, it gives them the certainty that they know how much to get out of the ground, And if you know how much to get out on the ground, you hire people, you control your costs, and you get a certain amount of upside because you just have that predictability. Now, the reason why, uh, for example, I don't like chemical and I own own Uranium Energy Corp, UEC, is because what UEC has rather than chemical is unhedged. So that means that they are not Mm -hmm. contracted out, right? So if... For example, the price of uranium goes to60 dollars per pound and stays there for a considerable number of months, they can start to ramp up their production, okay? And they unlike chemical that uh, you know they're guaranteed to get a certain amount um, of uh, uh, a certain amount for their pounds of uranium, if for example the price of uranium was to go to let's say 65 or 70, chemical wouldn't really participate in that whereas UEC would participate because they are just unhedged. So the, the more it goes up, they're assuming, which it would to a certain extent, the costs of getting that out of the ground remains relatively stable adjusted for inflation. You get a lot of that upside percolating down to the bottom line. So you get a lot more leverage out of that. Now, mm-hmm. this same thesis that I told you, I could have told you anytime in the last two years, that that, that has been the pervasive thesis for a long time. But up until now, the price of uranium has been really, really just kind of quite a boring thing. But in the last several weeks, there's been this kind of jump. And why I believe that is, is two main factors really, is people trying to think a bit more about this energy transition. And secondly, politically, it's not viewed as such a negative thing anymore, it's like people say, you know what? Maybe nuclear energy is not such a bad thing. It's carbon neutral. It you know it gives you a lot of reliable energy. It's flexible. It's cheap, and you know there are, there are different um, arguments for it. Now, just one thing about Kazakh prom that I said at the start. So, Kazakh prom makes a lot of this uranium. The problem is that to get it out of um, Kazakhstan, you need to go into uh, Saint Petersburg um, in Russia, and you need to export mm-hmm. it by boat out of there. And it's not that hasn't been really prohibited, but a lot of Western countries are no longer willing to buy that because they believe it could indirectly benefit uh, uh, Russia's economy. Now, I pass no judgment on that. What I will say is that for a lot of insurers, they're not willing to pay to insure the cargo coming out of Russia Mm. because something could happen. You know, some 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 stray drone fires something that goes you know a bit awful, and how would the insurance be willing to take that debt? You know, and the right that that ship that cargo. So there's a bit of a, a, a restriction on the amount coming out. Now that doesn't stop Kazakhstan mm-hmm. from, from selling it elsewhere, China, for example. But when historically and um, people been buying their uranium pounds kind of via Russia, it kind of just makes it an extra friction here. So going back <clears throat> to why your price is kind of going higher is really the, that idea that there's a bit of a geopolitical angle here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to overdrum the, oh, 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 go going that too much, but there is mm-hmm. a bit of a, a friction getting that out of uh, Kazakhstan. And also politically, it's not seen as the worst evil right now. So, and just finally, the negative argument for Uranium is that for the past, let's say, for example, two years or so, all this that I've said, everyone's known about it. But the problem with the Uranium market is quite opaque. It's really quite difficult to know who is supplying the Uranium Mm -hmm. um, to the spot market. And the reason is that there's a lot of secondary supply on the fringes. And it's been the case for several years. It just comes, you can just get hold of it. You can just call a broker, the broker phones up someone else. It's, it's a bit more, um, has a bit more friction in the process than let's say mm-hmm. uh, buying oil, for example. But mm-hmm. it's it, you can get hold of that secondary supply and no one has any idea how much of that secondary supply of um, uranium is still out there. So right. there's, there's still a bit of uncertainty. And that's why to a large extent, the uranium stocks haven't really jumped significantly higher and i'll just finish by saying that on the other side of the equation if you look at kamiko um it's up about 38 or 40 percent in this year so it's doing significantly better than a lot of other uh stocks out there so you can't really say that investors is skewing that it's not the investors are not interested in, in let's say nuclear participation, it just maybe hasn't made that many headlines. and But over the next several months, people will say, oh, you know what, Actually, let's get invested in uh, uranium. And once you look at the price of chemical, they may consider looking to some of these other uh, secondary um, businesses.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very interesting. Obviously, we have those geopolitical challenges when it comes to investing in energy. I like the idea that you mentioned before about the company being uh, unhedged. I I remember that's kind of a point you made also with Antero Resources, one of the companies we talked about in our previous podcast. Now to wrap up before we go off, I wanted to talk a little bit about more about the uh, semiconductors, the AI re- revolution that's been happening. Obviously, it's interesting people talk about semiconductors, microchips. As you know, the pick and shovel play. Right, you sell the um, you sell the tools needed to carry out this AI revolution. That seems a bit overplayed. I want to talk about the pick and shovel of the pick and shovel, right? Which would be what are the the commodities that are behind these chips? And what are your thoughts on that? Because I know that you also cover commodities a lot. And I've recently been talking to my subscribers about copper, which I find quite interesting. Uh, What are your thoughts on these commodities in the light of this kind of uh, AI and chip revolution?
1: So there's a few different things. So the chips are made from silicon and silicon is not that expensive to get hold of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the idea of investing in, let's say, for example, something like Nvidia is that's most likely the number one winner, okay, in this space, okay? But then the counter argument is, yes, I recognize that and everyone else recognizes that, but is there a way to participate indirectly on this thesis. So I believe that I say that um, AI is going to be massive, but is there a way, that's the way I think about how to indirectly participate in this inflection. So the way I describe myself as an inflection investor, how can I position myself into commodities and businesses that in the next two years, they're going to do reasonably better than expectations are right now. So For example, I uh, invest in this business called Tech Resources, um, and that's a a, a bit of a a business that I kind of enjoy investing in because it has what I call two catalysts, okay? So Tech Resources is, for the most part, a, a copper business, but it also has a coal business associated with it, okay? And because it has the coal and the copper, it's kind of like not that attractive to institutions because not a lot of uh, institutions want to invest in a business that is, you know, it's not ESG friendly because it has uh, mm. the, the copper business. Um, so what they're trying to consider is some way of spinning off that coal business. Now, it has been uh, temporarily or it has for now kind of hit a bit of a snag because they didn't get the approval to spin it off cleanly. Uh, So it's kind of like a question mark, but it's in the process right now of cleaning up. So I don't know how it's going to clean up, but it's very much in the works. They're going to get rid of this whole business. I don't know if they spin it off to Glencore or if they, I don't know, basically. There's a spin-off happening and you're going to end Mm -hmm. up with just the copper business. And like your viewers don't have to consider necessarily just tech resources. There are other copper businesses, but I believe that uh, tech resources is significantly cheaper than its comparables like a a free free port Um, and so when you look at it there's two catalysts here okay so to build ai you need Mm -hmm. a lot of electrification and we kind of touched on this at the start so it's the rewiring of the grid so that's what i talked about kind of digitalization everything that needs to be kind of electricity digital so so to get that you need to make sure that the electrical grid can sustain that charge that comes from running um AI training and AI inference. So these are very energy intensive. The, the, for people who haven't seen the video before, the way I talked about it is the chat GTP consumes about, to, to, to train the model once, consumes about the same as 200,000 houses in the US using a year. Okay, so it's, it's, it's really energy intensive. Now, think about Meta having it and AWS having it and like whoever else, uh, Alibaba having it. So if everyone is doing this kind of training, you're going to need a lot of the rewiring of um, the electricity. And to do that, you need two main components. You need aluminium and you need copper. And you also need to hold up these uh, the electrical grid. So in these type of commodities, these are building commodities that everyone's like thinking are directly associated with China. My contention is that it's not really going to be Mm -hmm. the case over the next three, four years going forward as it has been in the previous cycle. In the previous cycle, investors like to, to think in patterns of what happened in the past. So yes, admittedly, in the past, steel was directly correlated to real estate in China. But right now, I believe that through this decoupling, there's going to be a lot more uh, happening in the construction in the U.S. So if you see, there are two bills in the U.S. There's the IRA, A-A-A Infrastructure Reduction Act, and I think it's the other one's called IIJA. I can't remember what it stands for, but it's a construction bill. So there are two large bills that are going to stimulate the construction of and um, this whole re-electrification. So when you mm-hmm. look at, let's say, copper and steel, which are gonna be like two main um, beneficiaries of this, nobody's really thinking about it. You, you look at, let's say, uh, copper, uh, uh, copper equities, and you look at uh, steel equities, those equities are like just dead. No one's, and you compare that with, let's say, uh, all these AI plays, um, they just go into the moon. And it's not to say that they will not, continue to go to the moon for a prolonged period, per, per period of time, but the expectations are there already for them to go to the moon. So they have to mm-hmm. live up and surpass that expectation. Whereas with these, let's say steel, I own United States steel, and um, the expectation is not really there, right? And again, let's say, for example, I own United States steel, so there's my, um, I do have a bias for it, but it's a business that everyone thinks is dead in the water, But what they did in 2022 and 2023, they were constructing a lot. So they they were really CapEx heavy. And Mm -hmm. starting 2024, they've built their River 2 mine, uh, and they're going to be cutting back on their CapEx. So just naturally, the amount of free cash flow that's going to make is going to be growing quite significantly. So there's uh, different trends here to participate in AI. So just to sum it up. It's important when you think about investing in a commodity number one thing think about the balance sheet okay there's there's too many commodities there with uh, businesses that have frail balance sheets you don't have to pick a lot of the times the discrepancy that you're getting for getting a good balance sheet and a bad one is like you're not really paying a big difference so you might as well to search for a business that has a good balance sheet okay that's the first mm-hmm. most important thing the second thing if possible try to pick businesses that have two catalysts so i talked about um tech resources how they're spinning off their coal business mm-hmm. uh, so that's going to give them a, a re-rating as a pure play copper business and i talked about the united states Steel how they're cutting back on the capex that they're going to have in the next year so you are going to participate in the increase of the underlying commodities. For example, I believe strongly that copper prices are gonna to continue to go higher in the next two, three years. So you are participating on the uprise of that copper price, but you don't need that because you also have the catalyst where the business is spun off as a core business So just you're just mm-hmm. gonna get a natural re-rating of tech. Maybe they'll even label the company something different, and maybe like you'll be like a copper 2.0, whatever, copper with a Z on the end or something like that, uh, just to make it jazzy. Yeah. And you kind of get a, a, a re-rating close to something, let's say, um, to uh, some of the peers. And the same here with uh, United States Steel. So you're going to see them cut back on their CapEx, and I believe that you're going to see steel prices coming up. So at the start of the conversation, we talked about uh, China stimulating their economy, and this is one of the things that they talked about. They have talked about stimulating their their construction. And you've seen that in the last several days, really, with steel prices, kind of, they hit like a bottom and they kind of started coming back up again. So it's important to think about, in conclusion, the balance sheet. Whenever possible, think about the secular secular wins that are going to take the business forward. Think about the valuation. Really, the free cash flow is so critical. Try to pay if possible less than let's say six times free cash flow for a business in the next two years is going to be in a stronger position.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely that makes a lot of sense like I was saying before I've recently talked to my subscribers about copper kind of based on that idea of China which I don't kind of contradicts a little bit what you said because you said that that link is maybe broken I pointed out that there has traditionally been a very strong link between copper kind of a proxy for the Chinese economy. So I was saying this is a kind of safe way of, you know, investing in China without investing in China. And plus you get the upside of, like you say, owning something that is, you know, has much larger tailwinds behind it. Then I also find it very interesting what you said said about infrastructure, because I actually, I was talking to a fellow essay contributor, Trading Places Research. We talked a lot about AI, that's his area of expertise. But then when I asked him to uh, make a stock pick, he told me about some companies in the infrastructure business also talking about some of those big big plans in the US a lot of spending coming into that infrastructure which kind of very much in line with, with what you were talking about i think
1: um so like obviously you know there are different ways to think about this uh, your way uh, can be right the mine can be wrong or like doesn't matter um so the way that i see it is that you need in the west to rebuild the electrical grid. And the reason for that is that there's the thesis behind a lot of people that we are having so many more efficiencies that we don't really need to build out the electrical grid in the US, for example. And, and I categorically see that differently. I honestly believe that we really want to ramp up the horsepower in terms of how much energy we use via the, the electricity. So um, it's not only, you know, really the, the U S but really when you think about it uh, around the world, everyone wants to live up and aspire to have the same quality of life as they do in the U S and to get that, you need access to cheap energy and you need the way to get that is really by having this supply situation sorted out in terms of how you get the energy and how you mm-hmm. transmit it across. Um so just just to wrap up very briefly, um, I think it's going to be quite interesting in the next several years to think about um, batteries and how, uh, I'm invested in lithium, so that's why I said it, but um, how to think about across different points how are you going to be able to store that energy across the way because the, the the energy transition is by definition how do you store that intermittent energy because you get energy maybe not at the time that you really need it so I think that's going to be something that's quite interesting and worth kind of following
0: it's interesting I wanted to ask you about lithium batteries before we finished off obviously you said that you're invested in lithium so that's something that you see as a as a bullish bullish outlook on lithium.
1: Yeah, so I believe, um, I'm investing in ALB, Albemarle. I believe that this is a good way to invest in lithium. There are other lithium plays. uh, For example, a lot of people like SQM, Sociedad Chimica Mineral, SQM. So a lot of people like that uh, because it's a lot cheaper than uh, Albemarle. But I don't think that necessarily... Just because something is cheaper is offering necessarily better value. So mm-hmm. I know a lot of value investors kind of say, okay, I'm going to go for this because it's cheaper than, than that. But I think that the, although that sometimes does play out, and I think that sometimes is helpful, I don't think it's always helpful. Uh, it's mm-hmm. You know, in investing, it's a lot of that kind of idea that um, a half truth is worse than a lie. So you kind of go with something that kind of has a bit of grain of truth to it, but you, you have to take it to a pinch of salt and have to think it through sometimes with more. So I believe that ALB is a better investment because um, it's a large company, uh, better quality of management. And I think that they also have a much more um, clear vision in terms of their capital allocation. And you can see that in the way that they talk about their projections over the next several years. So the stock... Uh, It's kind of complicated, right? So the stock is priced at approximately, let's say, I don't know, like eight or nine times earnings, but it doesn't, it seems cheap. But the reason is that they have a lot of capex. Now, Mm -hmm. you can make the case that, for example, um, that those earnings don't really mean much because they haven't to reinvest quite significantly. But the other side of the equation that I'll take is that if the business is growing on the top line by approximately 40, 45%, as they've recently guided to, Why shouldn't you invest? You should invest as much as you possibly can. If you're getting that much market share, you should just go all out. And Mm -hmm. as long as you're making sure that the business is gonna be free cash flow break even, you just run through it. And that's what they're saying. They're pretty much saying that this year, they're already gonna be free cash flow break even. I estimate maybe that they're gonna make around 500 million of free cash flow next year. Perhaps, I don't know. know, I don't wanna look too much into the future. But that could double to a billion the following year, perhaps even more. But it's it's important to think about the whole energy transition is contingent on being able to store that energy somewhere
0: mm-hmm. absolutely. That's a that's a very good point. If we can't store the energy, right? What are you going to do with all that energy, especially coming? the renewables. And like you say about the companies as investors, it's, it's important to look at those nuances, right? I mean, in accounting, you can maximize for cash flow, you can maximize for other things, you know? So again, depending on the, yeah. on the objective of the company, you know, cash flow might not be so important given, given that. Just before we go, I also want to throw one last question at you, Michael, if that's all right. Um, I'm very curious to know, what are your thoughts on hydrogen? Because uh hydrogen energy is something that has kind of been around for a uh, while. You can, talk. can you Yeah, my my question was on hydrogen energy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Cause that's kind of been around for like years and years as this kind of panacea for the future. It, it hasn't quite panned out. And there's some uh, interesting companies in the in the sector, but um, well, it hasn't did, quite panned did... out yet. I was wondering what your thoughts are. So I
1: don't know much about it. All I know is right. that uh, Vaclav Smil is someone that I really follow and he doesn't seem to believe that it's uh, mm-hmm. gonna be um, scalable enough to scale it mm-hmm. at a commercial level. So mm-hmm. if someone uh, like Vaclav Smil, maybe you, uh, some of your listeners know who he is, is if, if, if someone like that speaks about energy and doesn't believe in the prospects of hydrogen as a scalable commercial enterprise, you know, I'll defer to someone that is a bit kind of better than me and understand this kind of stuff. And I'll say, okay, I don't need to chase that. There's plenty of other things to chase around.
0: All right, Michael, once again, thank you so much for coming on. You've given us a lot to think about. You've given us some great picks some great names and a lot of very good insights into the energy sector. So once again, Michael, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Uh, I want to say thank you very much for, for, for having me and I really appreciate it. And I cannot wait to come back next time. Thank you so much.
0: All right, Michael. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Once again, everyone, thanks for listening to The Pragmatic Investor. If you aren't already, please go ahead and follow me on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening to the podcast. And remember that if you'd like more content on investing, I do a lot more on Seeking Alpha. You can find me there, James Ford, The Pragmatic Investor, where I cover crypto, the macro outlook, international stocks, and so much more.